This is Norman B's Life Elsewhere, the show about art, media, and culture. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. That's right. I'm Norman B. Coming up, my interview with an author I urge you to take special note of. Elizabeth Tan hails from Perth in Western Australia, and her debut novel, Rubik, is certainly one of the most intriguing books to be published this year. Now, my interview with Elizabeth Tan, that's going to happen later in the show. First, new music. Here is an exceptional release. Now, stay with me. I want to tell you much more about this on the other side. This is Life Elsewhere.
you know there's just a few releases that have made such an impact on me, you'll find I reference them again and again when I'm compiling my best of lists or I'm explaining what a groundbreaking piece of music is. You just heard from one half of an outfit I continue to rave on about since 1988. The track we just heard is titled Thinking About You from Jubal. Now you can possibly pronounce it differently, but let's just stay with Jubal. Rudy Tambler of A.R. Kane fame has been performing and recording with Maggie Tambler and Andy Taylor since 2015, and their debut EP, Thinking Sweet, has just been released. Okay, you're wondering, so why am I going on about an influential release from 1988? The best thing I can do is to play it for you. Here it is, The Exquisite Lolita by A.R. Kane.
That was Lolita from A.R. Kane from 1988 on the 4AD label, originally released as a 12-inch EP. A.R. Kane were a duo, Alex Ayuli and Rudy Tambler, and the music they made was groundbreaking at the time, and still is to this day. Lolita sounds as fresh and as innovative as it did back in 1988, so for me it's truly exciting to hear new music from a member of A.R. Kane. Thinking About You from Jabal is a perfect way to carry on the legacy of A.R. Kane. Now here's a tip, do yourself a favour and get yourself a copy of Lolita. The links are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Oh, and I just got word we can expect an interview with Rudy Tambler coming up soon on Life Elsewhere. Okay, next, my interview with talented Australian writer Elizabeth Tan, right after this. Listening to the best show on radio about art, media, and culture. Life Elsewhere with Norman B. Now, before I introduce Elizabeth Tan, let me set up the scene for you. On my recent visit to Australia, I was fortunate enough to meet up with Elizabeth at a bustling cafe. We'd sat outside on a beautiful sunny day and the ambient noises you'll hear all add to the atmosphere portrayed in Rubik, Elizabeth's debut novel. Now, after you read Rubik, you'll understand why I left in the sounds of people chattering, cutlery clinking and birds chirping. Here then is my interview with Elizabeth Tan on Life Elsewhere. On my recent journeys, I stopped in Los Angeles and a very kind publisher gave me a copy of the debut novel, Rubik by Elizabeth Tan. And on my 17 or whatever it was, hour journey to Sydney, Australia, I indulged in the book. And then I took a flight from Sydney to Perth and I read more of Rubik. And by the time I arrived in Perth, which I'd never been to before, I thought perhaps I was a character from Elizabeth Tan's Rubik. And that really is my question to Elizabeth Tan, who's joining me for an interview, sitting outside on a lovely day right here in a suburb of Perth. Does that surprise you that I felt like I was a character in your, in your wonderful book? Um. It's very sweet. It's, it's touching. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So let's get into it. You've written this. You've written this just astonishing, and just really outstandingly captivating debut novel. Uh, debut novels for me don't usually capture me and, and capture my imagination quite like this one. It's. It's quite a work. I mean, you you go all over the place in this. It's sort of it's separate stories, but they're joined together. It's there's so many different dimensions. Uh, talk to me about just the beginning of this and how it all came about for for you. Um, well, I guess um, the early kind of impetus or um, I guess inspiration for it was I read um, 
pattern recognition by William Gibson. Yeah. Um, I was, and I'm not normally a science fiction reader, um, but even, but even, and even though I wasn't familiar with um, William Gibson's reputation as science fiction author, I could still recognise the work as, as science fiction. Yeah. And I was interested in how it didn't uh, extrapolate into the future. It was, I think it was published in 2003, but yes. it was set in 2002. Um, so I was just interested in this idea of how is it possible to write science fiction about the present day. Yeah. Um, and then um, I was kind of looking for something to, to, to focus my PhD project on at, at Curtin University. And... Um, I kind of just went with that idea and so that's kind of where it began I was I was kind of like yeah how how is science fiction used as a discourse to describe the present day and make sense of the present yes, day yes yeah. yeah and then as, as I went on I was writing more stories I kind of found myself slipping away from that science fiction voice and into something else yeah um, yeah I guess science fiction has kind of more of a there's more of a fidelity to to logic and rationality right. maybe and yeah um, I was I was very like I was heading somewhere more dreamlike. Right. Yeah. And science fiction can sometimes help you to explain things that in normal storytelling is maybe difficult to do to, to sort of get across some of the some of the points you want to get across. That's just my sort of take yeah. on that. But one thing, let's get back to this the structure because I I called it a novel, and I don't know whether that's really correct because it is a it is a collection of short stories yeah they connect yeah so, yeah it's both <laughs> so, um, so it's both it's yeah. a novel and it's a collection of short stories yeah. would, would you prefer one or the other um well it's interesting like i think when i first submitted the manuscript to uh, to when i was submitting the manuscript around i i think i was I was calling it a fragmented novel. Fragmented and novel. And then it wasn't until uh, Brio published it that they called it a novel in stories. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So talk to me about the just the process because the, the whole writing process, no matter what, no matter who, always fascinates me how authors go about it and how they... In this case, it seems to me that you must have had a... A, a, some kind of sort of outline of where you were going to go with the whole complete thing or did was it in sections as you wrote it yeah I kind of I feel like I tricked myself into writing this novel like um, I was like okay I'm just, I'll, um, I like to do things slowly piece by piece so I'll just write a collection of sh short stories um, but yeah as I went along and wrote more stories it be kind of it it um, I found myself drawn to bringing in characters who had appeared or kind of exploring their their story from another character's perspective right um i want to just focus in just for just for a moment on something which i think because i, I I'm, i've never been to australia before so here i am sitting here with you lovely location in perth but as i'm and this is why i said at my introduction that i felt like i was i could be a character in the novel because for me and I don't know if you, 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 this has been said to you, but it's it's very Australian. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Has that been has that been said? Has it... Um, I, I've. Yeah, like um, I think that's a part of why it's so surprising to me that I've um, yeah, that it's been picked up in the US and the UK. Like it, I, it's so particular to to Perth, especially. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess. Um, it's it's partially because I mean I grew up in Perth, so um, it, this is a familiar setting to me, and I guess I 
I, I, I affectionately refer to Perth as a kind of deeply unmagical place yeah. because it's so familiar to me um, and it's it was just kind of the perfect very mundane setting in which to bring in like I guess disrupt disrupt reality a little bit yeah and you describe it in and I want to I want to talk about this a little bit more, but you 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 manage to describe scenes and, and, and there's gosh, I, I want to just quote so many from you, but I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna say this: you describe scenes and you use words, your use of language is is clever. Mm. So now let's talk about the, the the different the different characters and the different scenes and the different. For instance, Jules, yes, the friend <laughs> of. Of Ele- Eleanor. Yeah, Eleanor, Eleanor Rubik. Rubik. Yeah. There's a, there's this lovely character, Jules. Well, I say lovely. I mean, she's lovely to me because she's such a. She's, you, you describe her and, and you and you. We learn about her and. She's a she's a drone. You call her a drone. <laughs> yeah. She in works IKEA. at IKEA. Yeah. Tell me about Jules. Um. Well. She is the character that kind of pops up the most often yeah, in, the, yeah. in the novel. Um. She is kind of uh, well. She's Eleanor's best friend, and so in the first in the first story, um, Eleanor d- dies in a car crash. Yeah. Um, Which I, I've got to stop you there because that just like it's, we're going along, we're reading, and it's just very almost sort of so just pleasantly ordinary. Yeah, it's so know? benign. <laughs> yes, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, and she died in a car crash. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Um, so. I think, like, after that moment, like, Jules is kind of, is grieving, but I feel like we never really get close to Jules, because she kind of, um, she kind of inadvertently um, stars in a a student film, um, and, like, she just has one scene where she jumps off a wall, and that... Ten seconds long. Yeah, 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 and that frame becomes, um, somehow just takes on a life of its own it yeah. becomes a meme and yeah. so she like I, I feel like every time she appears again in the novel she kind of it's like she's almost receding somehow into an image yeah um, so in her final the final time that she appears in uh, Quan Times 5 the last story like she yeah you don't know yeah, you don't quite know who she is or right. what her what her agenda is. Now, was that deliberate? You wanted her to be almost um, a kind of... She comes across to me as being... She's fully formed. I kind of not, I kind of got her. But as you say, you don't really... We don't really get close to her. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I kind of... She could be sitting here right now and I'd recognise her. <laughs> but I really don't know... I don't know anything about her. Mm. So... We're using her as a sort of a guide in some respects, as a sort of a, a, a kind of, so you could give us a little sort of connection through. Yeah, I guess, yeah, she does kind of function almost as a totem, I guess, like a, she, you keep track of, I guess, the, the main, the main narrative, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, even though like some of the stories jump back and forth in time, that like, there's, I guess you can keep track of, yeah, the... The kind of main through line of the novel by keeping track of, of Jules, yeah. I'm talking to Elizabeth Tan. Her debut novel is called Rubik. It is a fascinating read. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk to you, Elizabeth, about the, the, the complexities of this book because it really is. Um, on first read, and I've delved into it now after being on an airplane for many, many hours reading it. But I've been delving backwards and forwards into it, and it's extremely complex. Mm. Let's talk about that right after this. Mm. 
Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. To learn more about our program, our guests, and the music we feature, go to lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. If you just joined us, we're talking to Elizabeth Tan. She's the author of a fascinating book. It's called Rubik. This is her debut novel, except we decided it's not a novel. It's, it's, what did we call it? it, Um, We've called it a fragmented fragmented novel and a novel in stories. There we are. (laughs) So I said uh, just before the break, it's a complex book. And... And it really is, Elizabeth. I mean, it's got so many things going on. I mean, you know, here I am. There's a there's a, there's a piano teacher, and then there's there's um, the 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 young lady with the eye. God, what's the, I'm, 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 uh, Becca? Becca, and then we yeah. go from Becca with a cornea issue to an octopus. <laughs> uh, talk to me about the, 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 the sort of changes and the and the complexity of the different situations and the characters. Mm. Um, well, I guess I was interested in this idea of like just different layers of fictionality and like just yeah, um, keeping the reader in a sense in a state of not being quite sure whether to take what they're reading as given or whether yes. they're reading a, a text within my text kind right. of thing. Yeah. yeah. So in thinking about that. It seems to me, when I got to the end of the book, it seems to me that you were, in some respects, you were you were testing the reader. <laughs> you, you, you were testing me, seeing how how much I was going to pay attention. <laughs> um, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I didn't mean to test the reader. Um, I yeah. I guess. Um, I guess. I, I guess I was looking. For a reader that would just be willing to go along with go things along like, with it. yeah, just yeah. okay, like here's some stuff that went down in my brain, yeah. like let's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah come, come join me, kind of thing. Yeah. Did you have fun writing the book? Um. Yes and no. I think like there are still some stories that I, I look at and I I remember how a struggle it was to to, to do that. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, by the time I got to writing Quantine's Five, the last chapter where everything yeah. kind of just really goes off. Yeah. Um, I I kind of like I just realised I just had to like just embrace it, like just be just be silly, silly. and strange. Yeah. And, like yeah. um, it helps that the story kind of takes the it's written in second person and it's kind of taking the form of a video game. Um, so that kind of helped me kind of I guess be a little bit more uninhibited and just yeah, yeah just do, do whatever kind yeah, of thing yeah. yeah you do you you surprise us as the reader you surprise us with because you do manage to sort of just let us know what certain characters are thinking um, but it's fleeting it's kind of very it's very like oh and you get it and, and then it goes on to another you, you sort of you, you change the perspective a number of times in in each different different scenario but talk to me about the scenarios because there's there's so much stuff that's going on um, did you I, 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 again it fascinates me I just wonder whether you had an idea to begin with you go okay I'm going to do this this and this or did did one thing spark another thing um 
think it was the second. Yeah, like um, I was discovering the story as I kind of went along. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, I think towards the end, I had to be a little bit more like strategic, and I had to like write here's a timeline of events, and here's this. I had to have a spreadsheet where I was like, here's which stories like reference. Right. Other, right. Yeah. Other things. Yeah. So I have to ask you this. So was Eleanor Rubik an early story or was it a later story? Would that because because the title Rubik, of course, and we think Rubik's Cube and um, and the, and, the, and the whole collection of stories together, it, it is a sort of a it's a puzzle. Yeah. Um, was that an early story or was was that? Yes, Rubik. Uh, the first chapter of the book was the very first story it, that I wrote. Was yes, it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and was it was it intentionally in? Because you chose the name Rubik, was it intentional that it was going to be a, a puzzle? Um, honestly, I picked I picked Rubik, the surname, just from a Wikipedia article, I think. Like, I looked up uh, European surnames or something like that, and Rubik was just one of them, and I just liked the sound of it. Yeah. Um, it, it fit well with Eleanor, so I just went with it, and, um, I, and you know, it was... I intended it for be the to be the first story in my collection, so I was going to title the collection Rubik and other stories. Right. But then it, yeah, it, because it became so interconnected, I just called it Rubik. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you when, when you? I don't know. I don't know what point, but maybe halfway. Did, was there, was there a point when you go? I'm halfway through the book now. Did did, did you have a sort of an idea in your mind about where? Where there was a beginning, a middle, and an end, it's, even though even though it's as, as we've said already, fragmented, it's a fragmented novel. Was that a construct that you that you had in mind? Um, I think it wasn't until I'd written most of the stories that I began to think of it, think of how I might order it. Yes. Um, yeah, but. Um, and did you write the did you write the individual stories in sequential order, or did you write them and then you put them together? Um, as you wanted to. I it was kind of varied across the, across the board. Uh, yeah, because yeah. I, I took it was four years that I took writing my PhD. So at the same time, I was also you know like you know reading academically and you know um, yeah. working towards my you know my dissertation. Um, so yeah, I would sometimes be working like I would have a I would start a story and then kind of leave it for a bit and then come back to it. Right. Um, then you know, start another story in the meantime and. Um, yeah. So. I don't know that I've ever asked this question of an author before, but <laughs> I don't know because maybe I'm sitting opposite you and it seems appropriate. But were you were you nervous or concerned or other people's reactions? I mean, readers' reactions. Yes, I'm. I'm still always concerned. <laughs> always were concerned you? and sensitive. Yeah, I'm like. Um, yeah, I. I'm, I think that's just my my personal hack. I'm just scared of being a disappointment to everyone. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. 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 now, so so you've had incredible, terrific, positive reaction to this this book, um, and I think you're going to get more. It's just about to be published in the UK, and, and just from from how I know books are received there, I, I can imagine it's going to get some some really good reviews. So. It must feel good for you, Elizabeth Tan, to be getting all this accolades. I guess um, sometimes it's yeah, it's it's kind of touching. It's like um, it's like I think when I read one review recently that um, that was very very kind about the book, and it's like oh, 
like, so you were the person I was writing to this whole time. So oh. I've had lots of those sorts of moments yeah. when someone you know, yeah. says I liked your book, yeah. I liked this, and like I related to this. Or, right. Um, yeah, and it's like, oh, so like, um, yeah. You you were my reader the whole time, right? Like, yeah. Right. So yeah. there's that that kind of satisfaction. I think is. Did you? Yeah. Again, this is this is I, this is sometimes it's very obvious, an obvious question in certain for certain authors and certain books. But in yours, I don't think this is quite so obvious. But I, I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. Is Elizabeth Tan in the book? <laughs> I think parts of myself are in the book, especially yeah. in the really anxious, lost characters, ah. the ones that don't quite know what they're doing, and like it seems like. Um, everyone else knows what they're doing except for this this character, and I, um, you know, um, the time that I wrote this novel, it kind of coincided with um, a period of time where I was really uh, looking at my mental health and yes. kind of labeling, you know, um, you know what I had as kind of like social anxiety, and um, it kind of, and I think that especially comes through in um, uh, the story Luxury Replicants, where you got Michael and T and. Um, you know, eventually they discover these kind of audio ports around Perth, and if you plug it in, like there will be a little a calm voice telling you how to check out a book from the library or how to um, where to stand on public transport. And um, and yeah, I I was going through life, and like it seemed like everyone else knew what they're doing except for me. And it's like it would have been nice to have a calm guiding voice just telling me, you know, oh this is how you do, this is how you order coffee, or this is you know, yes. yeah, this is how you make a doctor's appointment, and. Um, so yeah, it. Um, so there's me in that in the novel in that way, like that that sense of of yeah I'm yeah I'm I'm being left behind. Um, I yeah I'm not good enough to to navigate to navigate the world. <laughs> I asked that question with the sort of presumption that that was going to be kind of your answer. Not I mean. It wasn't a trick question, but I, I but I kind of felt like there were some characters and some scenes that I felt that had to have been coming from inside of you, that were reflective, <laughs> yeah, reflective like, of you. Yeah. There is throughout the book, in the different the different scenarios, there is this there is a feeling of unease. There is a feeling of of, and I'm, I'm trying. I've been scrambling in my brain to think of the right word. Unease is not necessarily the right word, but there's a feeling of despair. Is not the word, um, but there's a sort of an, an edge. Yeah, there's a throughout. There's a fear. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you you paint it. You paint it so so well that I think the reader sort of feels it as you're, as you're you know yeah. as, as you're reading the reading the book and I, I wonder because I also I felt at the same time there are there are certain things certain things that happen in certain scenarios that suggest to me that you're that there's a point that you're trying to trying to get across I mean there's some sort of social issues and some there's some uh, political there's um yeah, talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, um, well, I guess towards the end of my PhD, um, I kind of realised that the wound at the centre of, of Rubik is this fear of being obsolete. Mm. And um, I think... Um, I think... 
if we live in because we, we live in an age where we kind of think of ourselves as technologized subjects mm. and like we, we think of ourselves as, as brands as, as products yeah and, um, you know, and you know we're co- we're so co-created and imbricated with technology and like so it makes sense that like if if our identities are so entangled with technology that one of our great fears would be like you know becoming out of date or becoming, yes you know left behind yeah so um, I think that yeah I think that's yeah it tends to be what I that's how I kind of make sense of Rubik that that's the, the fear that's that's at the edges of, of all the characters' minds. Now, I don't know if this is going to make sense to you, but your book, to me, is very now. It's very, it's very in the present. It's, it's almost slightly futuristic in, in some aspects, but, but it feels very now. You seem like you embrace the technology, you embrace now, you embrace the, the society we're in, except you... I get the I get the sort of feeling that you're kind of not <laughs> suspicious, but a little wary of, of as you just were talking about. But it comes across that you're a little sort of wary of where things are and where things are going. And oh, yeah, um, that's interesting. Like I, I find myself to be quite ambivalent. Like there are you know there are things you know that. You know, give me great comfort. Um, you know, the, the way that the age that we live in, and like, you know, it's like, especially after my dad died, um, I found myself, for instance, like going shopping a lot and like ah. just taking comfort in just being in a yeah. shopping center yeah. and like, yeah. um, and um, just it was just nice to be in a place where everything was functioning. Like, yeah. I, I, um, to, you know, to borrow a term from Don DeLillo, I think. Um, because in his novel White Noise, like there's lots of shopping center stuff. Yes. Just that that comfort of like yeah. you know everything having its place and like yeah. Um, so like you know there there are things that can, that can be deeply comforting. I don't want to dismiss that about you know the the way that we live and yes. you know um, the way that and the way that we use you know things like Facebook and, and Twitter. Like, yes. You, you 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 create real connections on you know using that using those interfaces that like they're not meaningless no. um yeah so i think there there's yeah it's 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 complex and it's um and i think the book kind of i mean it's interesting that you say that um it's it's uh, very now but also slightly futuristic because i'm sure there are some readers out there for whom the the, the stuff that I write about is quite dated for instance like you know maybe young uh, younger people who maybe uh, are more familiar with like Tumblr for instance they might yes. find the idea of discussion boards and for an internet forums a bit like a bit passe, a bit passe yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and but yeah then there are other readers like who might find the technology alienating as right. well um, yeah. especially you know when, if I'm talking about things like fan fiction and like you know, the kind of culture that technology enables and brings to fru- is able to bring to fruition see um, I, I got the feeling that you covered those areas you crossed you crossed the boundaries to me um, and, I, and I sort of felt like you, you, it, it was like it was, you, you were able to sort of swing the pendulum backwards and forwards <laughs> from you know, as you say, like like discussion boards and chat rooms to to the Tumblr, and, and it, 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 I, I I think you do it with incredible grace. You do it you do it do it incredibly well. We're talking to Elizabeth Tan. Her 
debut book is called Rubik. I've got uh, some more questions for you. One I want to just touch in on is about music, because it comes up in the book. And we're going to do that right after this. <laughs> this is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. We would like to know what you think of our program. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Sign for what's been, what's been. Sign for My guest is Elizabeth Tan. I'm sitting in a, an outdoor cafe in Perth, Australia. And we're talking about Elizabeth's debut book. It's called Rubik. Now, one part in the book, I, I noticed that you... You, you, you make wonderful references, and before I go further with where I'm, I'm going about music, you make references, you drop sort of cultural and social and whatever references throughout the book. And I've got to tell you, you talk about one scene, and I can't remember which, which book, it, which chapter it is, but it's about custard creams or Tim Tams, I can't remember which. And I, and I was like, oh, I got it, that baby. So when I went to a grocery store the other day, I searched out Arnott's, is that the company? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Arnott's. the Arnott's Assorted Creams. Creams, that's right, yes. So I was fascinated to find out, you know, so anyway. Yeah, that was a, um, my friend told me to put that in, like, I think I just, I don't think I mentioned the brand or anything like that, but um, I think it was it was at the school concert, isn't it? There's a school right? concert, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, they were yes. milling around yes, for yes, the really poultry snack table, and right, like, she yeah. was like, how about the Arnott's Assorted Creams? Creams. <laughs> yeah, and I, They're ubiquitous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay. terrific, terrific stuff. Some music, let's talk about music. Yes. Um, you bring it into the book. Just tell me about your 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 likes and dislikes I don't, you don't have to give me a list of bands or whatever but but clearly you are, you're passionate about music it would seem to me well I I started learning piano from a pretty young age like I think I was maybe about four or five um, and yeah that really like um, I think there's a scene where like uh, Kish the piano teacher she's reassuring Peter Pushka the student um, that like he, he asks, when does it get good? And she's like, you know, it won't get good for years. And that's, that was kind of my experience with piano. Like, for a, for a long time, it was just an obligation because, you know, it's what my mum wanted me to do. Um, but, yeah, I remember about, like, maybe... It took, like, maybe ten years of that before I started actually enjoying it for myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of stayed with me throughout, you know, high school and... Um, and then when I hit uni, I was trying to kind of keep it up, um, but um, it, it was kind of hard to keep that going along, alongside, you know, where I was going with writing. And right. eventually, I kind of I stopped learning piano. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of I guess writing is a way for me to still be kind of plugged into that world and that um, the, the language that. Um, that people in classical music use to, just, yes. to describe music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like that technical language, it doesn't go to waste, I guess. No, no, and you, yeah. and you enter it into the book where it works very, very well, but then also you, you're able to make pop references as well. Mm. Talk to me about those. Um, I guess I kind of just see that as part of the kind of uh, referential, mimetic kind of texture of the novel overall. Yeah. Like, um, just... Yeah, just um, making references. Well, the yeah. reason the reason that I ask that is that often when when fiction writers put in, whether it's classical music or whether it's you know popular music, mm. 
um, they're very it's almost a way that they can get in their own you know, you know their, their favorite band or their favorite you know genre or, or, and, and it's kind of, it kind of I think people feel like they almost have to sort of put in you know you know I love whatever it whatever it might be you know and, yeah I guess um, the other thing on that note about you know referentiality, I think I, I'm just remembering as well. Like I, as, alongside sort of real bands, there's also like fake fake bands, and yeah. I, I like the way that it kind of just yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. mixes together. I mean, William Gibson does a similar thing with in pattern recognition, where there's like real brand names, right. but also like ones that he's just made up. Right, and, right. Yeah, I, yeah. I liked that that melange of. So I've got yeah. to ask you about that. So that's <laughs> lovely. It's a lovely segue in, into into the octopus. Um, Story. Yeah. Um, the, the, the 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 two the men in the brown suits with the glasses and the briefcases and the truck. The uh, what's the name of the brand? Uh, the, uh, um, oh, Harvest Time. Harvest Time. Yeah. Now, yeah. is that real or is that fake? Well, that's fake. But apparently, well, Olivia recently posted a picture of a, a watermelon with a heart. A Harvest Time sticker on it, so it must be somewhere out there. Well, see, I, I was sure that it had to be real, but then I thought, well, I don't know. So then I thought, okay, this is an Australian reference. No, uh, no, it's just a, just a made up. Um, I mean, because it, it takes place in the world of an anime, so yeah. it's just within that world that the evil corporation is Harvest Time. Right. And, yeah. Um, it's implied, I guess, later on in the novel that maybe they might have links to to Seed, which is yes. a, a made up. Right, a made-up so, company. But. Perfect. Now that's a great segue into Seed. So talk to me about Seed, because my listeners, who I insist have got to get a copy of this book, um, talk to me about Seed. Um, well, they kind of creep up on you in the novel. I think, like yeah. they, um, they're a, a kind of tech company, and um, uh, like with phones and laptops and tablets, and um, they've somehow co-opted. The, the film that the student film that uh, Jules appears in, and um, it's kind of it's only really alluded to in the in, in the book. Like it's it's not quite clear how they how they yeah. used it and stuff yeah. like that. But um, yeah, they there's there's yeah they you never quite really know what they're up to. Like there's a sense of them them you know being involved in some kind of conspiracy yes. or like. Yeah, all that. Yeah, so it's not quite Big Brother, mm. and it's 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 it, it come it came across to me again. It came across to me that you were sort of you were telling me you were telling me to be on the lookout for something. Oh, um, I think. I mean, another significant thing that I see as part of the novel um, in the last chapter there's, there's this idea of the Rube Goldberg machine, a machine designed to accomplish a small thing um, and I think part of me thinks that, that seed, seed is just like a Rube Goldberg machine like they, were, they weren't, it was a conspiracy for, for the sake of a conspiracy kind of thing like they, you're, not, you're not quite sure what they were up to right. they were up to something yeah. and Eleanor's death might have been a part of that or yeah. like um, or um, Becca getting the cornea, getting her corneal transplant, but um, just as Peter Pushkin was going to ask her about the book, and um, so yeah, there's there's something at play there, but you're not quite sure what. And, um, so we've been talking for I don't know we have to look at the time and how long we've been talking for, but um, the next book, and this is one of those questions that I. I I feel I have to ask you because this is such an intriguing book. I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg for Elizabeth Tang. That you've got 
just a stack more ideas. Um, do you? Well, at the moment, I'm, I've just been writing short stories again. Yeah. Um, I don't think these ones will interconnect into a novel, but right. um, yeah, I've just been. Um, I mean, I've noticed. Um, it's kind of it, it feels kind of odd to talk about Rubik because it's like Rubik has become this sort of static object, and I feel like I've moved on right. from it in a way. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, sometimes I, I I flip through the book and like I just it's all un it's kind of unfamiliar for me, and even like the way that you feel about reading rereading your teenage diary was like oh I grew, uh, like yes. <laughs> yeah yeah, it's yeah, a bit, yeah yeah I know we're all hypercritical of our own work and yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I I mean I've noticed that like since writing Rubik I've I haven't been writing in a very realistic voice like I've been I've like it, like oh, there'll be a story that might be set in what looks like, appears to be a reality but yeah. something will be will be different about gotcha. it and yeah so I've I've definitely seen myself moving away from from realism I mean like the first chapter of Rubik um, that in some ways it's, it's the most ordinary chapter of the book like it it doesn't really um, it's the least weird and the, it's the most grounded of the stories. Yes. Yeah, and yes. I think that that was kind of where where I tended to write um, before 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 Rubik. Like a lot of my work tended to have that kind of tenor to it. Like it was quite like yeah, it was quite grounded. But right. like yeah, now now I kind of I feel like I'm going off in different directions. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question that I often ask authors. Because it just fascinates me. Because I'm just I'm just a curious busybody. Um, what's the process for Elizabeth Tan writing? Do, do you just give me the the, 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 the the actual the actual physical process of writing? Well, I think every story demands its own process. Yeah. Um, I used to write a lot in bed. Okay. <laughs> um, I think yeah, a lot of Rubik was written when I was in bed. Really <laughs> um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I used to. Yeah, I. I feel like I write best in the morning, like just after I wake up, when I'm not feeling too judgmental and, oh. and um, self-censoring, I guess. Yeah. yeah um, but yeah, these days, like, it, it really is different for, for every story. For every story. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, um, like, I don't foresee, foresee myself writing another novel. I think I, short stories short sto are, where, are where I'm at. And, um, yeah. What about the editing process? Um, I think I'm one of those writers who tends to edit as she goes. As you go, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, like, yeah. Sometimes, like, it takes a while for me to start a story because I, I want to. I'm particular about my first sentence or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Does it flow naturally for you? Do, do you do you like start writing and? It's almost like it. it, it well, you type. I guess you use a keyboard, you, um, and you, you. It just starts to roll. It just starts. To, it, it, you, do you have those moments when it, you, you just you, you can't? You, the thoughts are in your head, and you can't stop. You know, you, you, you can't get it down fast enough. <laughs> um, it doesn't feel that easy to no. me. No, I. Um, it's very rare to me for me to like write like say a thousand words a day or like even five hundred words a day. Really? Sometimes. Yeah, like sometimes I'm I'm moving at a pace of like two hundred words a day or three hundred really? words a day. Yeah. There's something, and I'm, and I'm, I'm 
glad I remembered I wanted to ask you this. In reading the book, and the different chapters, and different stories, there's a pacing that you have. I found myself in, in some stories reading, reading really fast, and in others reading at a gentle pace. And, and you were directing me as a writer. <laughs> to me, it, you were telling me how to read it. Was that, was that something you were conscious of? Um, no, I guess not. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I, can't, I can't say whether I did, like, yeah, yeah I can't I just, take credit for it, but like, yeah. It was very enjoyable because there were, it seemed like there's certain, certain stories that just needed to be read at a, at, a, at, a, at a more sort of intense pace and others you sort of spent your time sort of digesting. I mean, I digested all of it, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I found that fascinating because I think some writers have this ability. Like I said, kind of early on, and I, there's, there's so many different, different sort of little, there's little sort of almost almost throwaways there's little sort of descriptions and descriptive little little sentences and you there's a couple oh gosh I, 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 I really should read them out um, where, where you just like do a, like a, a short sentence and another short sentence but you sum up so much in just that, that little tiny little and it's just fascinating and exciting as you can tell I'm, I'm just thrilled with this book. I think it's a, it's a wonderful read. It's a great change. I get sent all kinds of books to read. Oh wow! And this is a this is a fascinating read, and I and I really do think it's just a it's it's a, it's a wonderful debut. Um, and I highly encourage everybody to do check it out. It's called Rubik. I've been talking to Elizabeth Tan. Thank you for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Rubik certainly is an extraordinary book. It's complex. It's a must-read. The link is up at lifeelsewhere.co. Here's a new release that happened to pop into my inbox just as we were looking to finish the production for this show. Coincidentally, this cut could be part of a soundtrack to Rubik. From London, it's a young lady who goes by the name Grand Pax. The title, Destroyer. This is Life Elsewhere.
here on Life Elsewhere from London. That was Destroyer by Grand Pax. Now I have no other information about this release except that it's on the indie label Blue Flowers. Now make sure you let me know what you think of that and the rest of the edition of Life Elsewhere. Write to me, Norman B at lifeelsewhere.co. Oh, and don't forget, Life Elsewhere is now available at NPR One and iTunes. The times the shows air at all the different outlets are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Until next time, be well, be good, and always, it costs nothing, be nice. Bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Life Elsewhere is produced at the studios of WMNF Tampa.